0: the thing. Um, all I feel like a lot of times it's just what we do. We, we tend to gravitate towards complacency in life. I just noticed that it's that way with a lot of us. And I was Looking online this last week and there was a study, there's a group that each uh, year comes out uh, at the beginning of each year with some statistics on the previous year about internet use (laughs) and the use of uh, passwords and that kind of stuff. And what they do is they asked Americans, they uh, said, you know, how how are you feeling about the internet right now? And the average American said, it feels pretty dangerous. Uh, People are stealing my passwords. People are trying to steal our identity, trying to get into our checking account and all that kind of stuff. So then they asked people, well, it feels dangerous. Do you feel like you're uh, taking the appropriate precautions to keep yourself safe on the internet? And most people said, yeah, I think I'm doing okay. So what I want to do is submit to you, how well are people doing? So what they, what this study did is they, they released um, the most commonly used passwords on the internet. Like these are for people's bank accounts, their email, their investments. You know, uh, really important stuff that protects your identity. And when I saw this list, I was shocked. I mean, I just, so I, I wanted to show you the top 10, but there's a couple of honorable mentions, right? So like the 23rd most used. And last night was great because I could see people last night, like they'd see some of these and all of a sudden they'd turn on their cell phone and be cha- changing their password. One guy said he changed his password. There was a guy last night whose password is the number two one. We'll show you in a minute. Um, number 15, right? It just gets better. Like this is, this is what you're protecting your bank account with. One, 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 right? Number 14, these people are smart because they're throwing in like the alphabet, right? And then I like, I like number 13, <laughs> is that right? That's pretty. No one ever figure that one out. You're safe with that. Uh, you know, 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7. Well, sure. So, here, let's look at the top 10. The top 10 most used passwords. Now, I got to tell you 10, 9, and 8, I don't even get. Like, 10 is weird enough. Nine, what am I missing? Like, is there a, I don't know what there, was there a movie or what was there? Why are people using Dragon uh, as number nine and number eight. So there's some sports that's going on there. And then it just gets good after this. All right, here we go. How are we protecting, uh, you know, our identity on the internet? Uh, one, two, three, four, Right? because <laughs> most of these sites you have to use at least four. Uh, now, you see, see what they did there? They didn't start with one. They're geniuses, right? No one's ever going to crack that, all right? You're you're safe. All your online investments, no problem. QWERTY, which actually, last night some guy was here, and here's the irony. He said, not only does he have QWERTY as a password, but he was wearing a shirt that said QWERTY. Just brilliant, brilliant. Now, this one is because last year a lot of websites went to, you have to have at least eight characters, so being the brilliant people that we are, um, one, two, three, four, five. Um, two was a, a password, which, you know, the most, con- second most, con- are you kidding me? And here's number one, brilliant. So, right. So here's the deal. When I saw this, all I could think to myself was, who does this, Right. And, and, and they say that while we should be changing our passwords often, we usually don't. So we don't change our passwords. And when we do, they're like passwords anyone can guess. You understand, if someone's going to try to break in to your email or your bank, you know they're going to start with these top ones. So if you have any of them, you need to get rid of them. But it just reminded me that, that we just kind of, it's one thing to be complacent on the internet, which probably isn't the safest thing to do. But it's a, a whole other thing altogether to become complacent about God. I say that because I feel like sometimes we we gravitate there. Sometimes we get to this place where we, you know, we could come into a worship service and sing about God, but our heart's not in it. We're just kind of complacent. You know, we hear about sin. Big deal. We, We hear the gospel. I've heard that before. We hear from the word. Doesn't really mean. And we just get complacent. Complacent in our prayer. Complacent in our repenting. Complacent in sharing Christ with people around us. We just get complacent. And we've been talking the last few weeks about John. John the baptizer. John the dunker. And I like this guy because this guy is anything but complacent. Nothing complacent about this guy. Now you know the story. We've kind of gone through this. His, his parents, when they were old and childless and, and beyond the ability naturally to have kids, says that God sent an angel to Zechariah and said, your wife in her old age is going to have a son. And he's going to be a great, great man. He's going to be a prophet He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And you know the story, John, John grows up. We're not really sure what happened to his parents. He grows up. He's in the wilderness. He's now, he's now 30 years old, roughly. He starts his public ministry uh, just a little bit before Jesus does. Really, one of the things to think about John, there's a lot of stuff going on with John, but John is what we would call the last Old Testament prophet. Because even though we see John in the New Testament, in terms of the period of history, when John comes on the scene, it's still, we're functioning pretty much in the Old Testament way of things. And then he's a, the first New Testament prophet. He's a if you will. And his ministry is to prepare hearts for Jesus, to to, to be preaching repentance, to to be baptizing people, to get them ready for the coming of the Messiah. We could say this, his job is just to point people. He's going to point people to Jesus Christ. Today, I want to talk about why we still do that today. Why did John point people to Jesus why would we point people to Jesus today? Why would we say as a church that if we don't do anything else, the one thing we absolutely do is we point people to Jesus. Why would we do that as a church? Why would you do that as an individual? Why would John do it? I'll give you a couple reasons in our text today as we come to John, or to Luke chapter 3, verse 15. And the first is this, because Jesus is greater. We'll point people to Jesus because he is greater in verse 15. And this is where we pick up the story that we left off last week. John's in the wilderness. Crowds are coming to him. He's preaching the word. And it says, as as people were in expectation and everyone was, was questioning, they were wondering in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So last week when we left off the story, Everyone's talking about John. He's got the number one podcast on iTunes, right? Everyone's got the t-shirt with John's face on there. You know, have you repented kind of thing. He's drawing the crowds. They're quoting him all over Twitter. He's like, he's the guy. And people are starting to wonder about this guy. They're starting to ask questions about this guy. Now, every, every Jew back then would have known what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah, Often lost on us today, but, but they, would have, they would have talked about it. They knew that God was going to send someone to save them, someone to lead them, someone to rescue them as a nation. But there were a lot of uh, theories about what the Messiah would be like and what he would do and how he would do ministry. A lot of different ideas, kind of like the church today. You know, Christianity today, there's a lot of speculation about Jesus' return, right? That might be a good example. Like today, there are a lot of Christians and, you know, when's he returning and how's he going to return and what's it going to be like? And there's lots of theological views. There's a, the, the pre-trib and the mid trib and the post-trib and there's a whole line of like, you know, ill-conceived books and I think a movie and, or two on it. And, you know, everyone's got their, the, there's the debates and there's the, the, the questions and all that and lots of books. When's Jesus coming back? We talk about it a lot. Well, back then, what they were talking about was when's Jesus coming the first time, right? When's, when's the Messiah coming? So people were starting to wonder, because here's this guy, John, he's totally different. Unlike the spiritual leaders of his day, this, this guy's humble, right? He lives in, a, lives in a cardboard box down by the river. He eats bugs. He wears camel hair, khakis, you know, and people come out to hear him and he just repents. He's yelling at him. He would repent. He's not very PC, you know, not very politically correct, not very tolerant. And, and yet people are responding and crowds are coming and You know, again, this makes no sense in the worldly view of things, you know. And and the world, we're like toned down the gospel and toned down repenting. And John's just the opposite. And people are just coming to him in gross. In In verse 16, it says this, John answered. So John knew they were thinking about him. And here's what John says. I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. They all knew that was the Messiah. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy To untie, And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is just saying, he knows people are talking about him. He knows people are wondering. John's just like, man, don't look at me. Don't look at me. This is John. Like, let me ask you, what would you do if you found out that all your friends and family and neighbors and church, that when you're not there, what would you think if they were talking about you? If people started to say, you know what? Everyone's talking about you. And they keep talking about how awesome you are. That probably happens to you all the time. Every time you leave a room, everyone talks about you and how awesome you are and how great you are and how incredible you are. Like, what would you do if you heard that? Would you be like, I need to go back there, you know? I gotta, like, what would you do? John knows people are talking about him. John's like, stop looking at me. Stop talking about me. You guys need to look to someone who's greater than me. John's like, man, I'm Bush League, all right? Don't think about me. Wait till you meet Jesus this guy is gonna blow you away. Now, John just says, you know, you come down here, I baptize you, but all I got is water. I just got H2O, put you in the water, dunk you, it's an outside thing. Maybe you get, you know, your little smell a little better when you come up, but but there's someone who's coming who will baptize you, not on the outside, but on the inside. He's gonna baptize you from the inside out with the Holy Spirit of God. Looks like I. You know, he's like, I can't do that. John says, I don't, I, don't, I don't have that. I don't have the Holy Spirit like that. And we're going to discover in Luke that the Holy Spirit is kind of a big deal. Um, Luke's going to talk about the Spirit a lot. And we read in the New Testament things like, you're not a child of God until the Spirit lives in you. Um, it's the Spirit who causes you to confess that Jesus is Lord. It's the Spirit who convicts you of sin. Sometimes if you're convicted of sin and you're feeling bad about yourself, here's the good news that's the spirit working in you and that's a good sign right that's, that's what you want uh, he convicts us of sin he, he gives us a love for Jesus he seals us for salvation he, he gives us for, for ministry he matures us and, and empowers us and John says see I can't do that I can't give you the spirit but that's what you need so my job he says is to point you to the one who can to point you to Jesus and here's how great this guy is John gives us an illustration The the strap of his sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie. So you have to understand, people are like, John is the best thing we have ever seen. John is like, we don't know anyone like John. He's an amazing man. And John goes, well, I got news for you because I'm nothing compared to Jesus. And he gives this picture. He says, you know, if Jesus walked in here today, I'm not even worthy to get on my hands and knees and untie his sandal for him. Now, You know, it sounds bad enough to, like, get near someone's feet and touch them, but we don't even really kind of understand this. See, back then they would wear uh, sandals that would just be straps of leather that kind of be open. Most of the roads you walk down were not paved, so your feet would get dusty, but it was way worse than that because, um, you know, it would rain and get muddy and um, people would throw, like, they'd throw their refuse out in the road, um, you know, when they'd empty their chamber pots. They'd just throw it out on the road. You're walking down those roads in open sandals. It's, and then there's, like, the animals, like, it makes me think of, I like to run along the and so like, if you walk your dog along the dike, you know the rule, right? You, you take a plastic baggie, right? Look like you know what I'm talking about. And you pick that up, right? You, you don't leave your doggy stuff on the dike so that when people come running along, they don't step in it. Here's the thing that's really confusing for me. Why we pick up dog stuff, but horses go up and down the dike all day long and they leave these big steaming... Po- so a couple weeks ago, I was running along the dike. It was late at night. My eyes aren't that good. I'm running along. All of a sudden, I just squished, just stepped in. it, just right in a big pot. i started running. I'm like, what? I, but I didn't see it. It was dark. I'm like, you know, what's that smell? I'm trying to run faster. I can't get away from it, you know? It's me. It's like, no, you understand, like back in those days, this stuff's all over the road, okay? And now <laughs> you go to someone's house, and if that, in the house they had a servant, it would be the job of the servant to come and, and, and untie your sandal. Because you didn't want to do that. No one else wanted to do that for you, right? It was like the lowest job. And John says, Jesus is so great that I'm not even qualified. <laughs> John, this great man, Jesus said, in fact, of all men born of women, no one's greater than John. John says, I'm not even qualified to do that. Which makes me think, the irony is 2,000 years later, we could, we could use some leaders like John because Christianity or churchianity or whatever you want to call it is so filled today with leaders and pastors seeking fame and you know trying to trying to sell their books and sell their sermons and go do seminars and full of worship leaders who are just in it to make money and come out with an album there's a so there is a this absolutely true you could look it up on the internet there's a church in Texas big church and um And they, I guess they really liked their pastor. And so um, they were putting some new curriculum together for um, Sunday school for the kids. So what they did is they made their very own in-house coloring book. And you'd ask like, well, what are they coloring? Well, pictures of Moses and pictures of, you know, John and Jesus. No, every page has a picture of their pastor that the kids get to color in. And then it's got a famous saying of their pastor on the bottom. This is the whole thing, right? And which... Let's not ever do that, okay? So, but this is the thing. In a church today, there's so many churches where it's just about celebrity pastors and celebrity singers and all this kind of stuff. John comes along and goes, you know, we need to stop this because this is not, this is about Jesus. If John were here, he'd be like, don't look at me. Don't think a lot of me. Don't talk about me. Talk about Jesus. Worship Jesus. Look at, look at Jesus. That's what we do. So one of the reasons why he says we point to Jesus is because he's greater and another is. And this is one we don't talk about a lot. John says, because Jesus is a judge. Jesus is the judge. And not a real popular idea in culture today. We're not really into judging, right? In verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, Here's the a, here's a picture. John is really a judge of sorts. People coming down to the river. John's calling them sinners. So there, there's some judging going on there, right? And telling them they need to repent and, and get wet. But he says, Jesus is going to come along. And he's a whole other kind of judge altogether. And to illustrate it, John gives us this picture. A picture of a farmer. Let's say he's got a, a wheat crop. And, and the crop is ready. And he goes out and he he brings it in. He brings it to a, a threshing floor, is what they have. And what they would do is they would let the crop dry out some. And they'd have this big dry spout, this, this flat place. And he would wait till it was a nice windy day. And he'd take this fork and they'd, they'd toss it in the air. Now the, the the grain that was heavier would fall down to the ground, but the chaff and stuff would kind of blow off to the side. And that's how they would separate it. And then they'd take and bag up all the all the grain, take that, and then they'd sweep up all the chaff and they would burn that. And this is the illustration that he gives us, right? Not real popular today to think about. People don't want to think about judging and Jesus as judge or, or, or anyone being judged for anything, right? But what he's saying here is this. In life, some people are, are the wheat and some people are, are the chaff. Some people belong to Jesus while others are blown away. Blown away by sin and temptation and, 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 and deception. And what he says is this. In life, there's going to be a lot of times where there are people who, who look like believers. And a lot of times I know as believers, sometimes we feel like it's, like it's our job to figure out who's who. And, and scripture tells us in many places, it's not really your job to figure out the heart of a person, which by the way, you couldn't do anyways. Like let God take care of that part. There's gonna come a day when everyone's going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he's going he's to figure it all out for us, right? And I was talking with somebody last night. I'm like, I think it's going to be interesting when we get to heaven, right? And when people are coming in and we're going to, I would imagine we might see some people who don't make it and we're like, man, I, I, was, really, I was really positive that they were, that they were in. And, and I think there may be some other people who get in and we're going to be like, what are you doing here? You know, like, how did you get in here? But Jesus is the one who does the judging. And what he says here is, be careful. A lot of people who call themselves Christians, who as time goes on are just blown away, sometimes blown away by trials, sometimes blown away when a church vote doesn't go their way or false teaching comes along and they didn't like that or something happens that they think is unfair and and they question God's goodness or when they don't like something that the Bible teaches and they're just, they're blown away. So what he says is, Jesus is going to judge. Someday we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account for our actions and our words and our thoughts and our time and our money and our sin. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, he's still going to judge you. Even if you don't believe in judgment. Now people tell me, I don't believe in judgment. I don't believe in Jesus. Well, you know, you don't get a vote. All right. (laughs) Jesus is going to be judged and that's what he did. So here's the thing. John's like, come on, you guys, you can't. You need to to understand this. And so with many other exhortations, he was preaching, now watch. He was preaching good news. That's gospel there. He's preaching good news. See, here's the good news. Jesus didn't come to judge you. Jesus came to save you. So be saved while you still can. He didn't come because Jesus came down and said, man, I haven't had a good judging in a while. I'm just going to come down to earth and judge a bunch of people. He came to save He came to forgive. He came to make us his children, right? That's why he came. That's the good news. That's what we preach. That's what we are for. Now, that's what John's saying. Jesus is going to judge. Here's a way to get out of the judgment. Give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you give your life to Christ and the day comes and you're off this planet and you're standing before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? And you're like, Actually, I'm not sure, you know. Jesus is going to come up, put his arm around you, and say, because I died for this person, right? You can let him in. God will be like, yeah, that's good enough for me. Now, John is trying to prepare hearts, okay? He's just trying to get people to understand. In verse 19, it says, but but Herod the Tetrarch, and now uh, Luke's just taking us ahead a little bit. He's telling us, this is a preview of what's going to happen. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, For Herodias, his brother's wife, I'll explain that in a second, for all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison and ultimately has him beheaded. Now, Herod Antipas, who we talked a little bit about last week, this is a guy, very powerful man, who uh, is is married. And historians tell us that he had a brother whose name was was Philip, and and his wife was named um, Herodias. And apparently, At some point, Herod and his wife were on vacation and they spent some time with his brother Philip and his wife. Now, apparently, uh, Philip's wife, follow me here, it sounds like a soap opera, Philip's wife was uh, the niece of Herod. But while they were together, apparently there was some interest that sparked there. And Herod, I mean, basically what commentators will tell you is Herod wanted her body and she wanted his power, right? This is, so he divorces his wife and she divorced her husband, which was unheard of. She divorced him. And everyone knew what was going on. It was the tabloids and non-extra and all that stuff. And then they got married. They just flaunted it. People were like, that's wrong. That's incestuous, right? You guys are uncle and a niece, and this is wrong. And basically their attitude was, you guys just need to get over it. And, you know, don't be hating and be so intolerant. And they just went on their way. But John, John just isn't going to let it go. So John, people come down and, you know, John will be preaching. And in the middle of a sermon, you know, he might be going, you guys need to repent. You're all sinners, you know, like Herod. Like Herod. He's a sinner, you know, that really powerful guy, which, by the way, it's kind of a dangerous thing for John to be calling Herod out because everyone know they all know he's a nut job, he was powerful, and he had people put to death all the time. So he's calling out Herod, saying it's adultery, saying it's incest, you've destroyed two families, you need to repent. And when it says that he was, he reproved him here, in the Greek, that indicates a continuous action. So he didn't just do it once, he did it a lot. Right. So, you know, Herod would be in his palace and somebody would be like, hey, I was just down listening to Jonathan at the river, man. He's just going on about you like nobody's business. And Herod would be like, "Ugh," you know, and then like a couple days later, somebody would come. Hey, I was down, John. He's just still talking about you. A month later, still talking about you. And Herod can't take it anymore. I mean, a lot like today, you know, people today don't like it. They don't like it when you call people on, when you call them on sin. It's not politically correct. It's intolerant. It's insensitive. You're not being diverse. What I find is people, they don't care what you believe. Most people don't care what you believe as long as you keep it to yourself. If you keep it to yourself, they're, they're good with that. But as soon as you start saying, well, actually, I'm a sinner and, you know, you're a sinner and I need to repent and you need to repent. When you start calling people on their sin and, you know, when you start saying, you know, sin is a thing, it really is a thing, and God defines it and you don't get a vote, and that just ticks people off, makes them mad. Now, John could have just kept his mouth shut. He could have just continued his ministry in peace. Maybe, you know, he might have got a book deal, went on a tour, you know, who knows, but But John just couldn't let it go. John just has to keep preaching. And and here's, I believe, why. It's not because John hated Herod. I think it's because John cared deeply for Herod. And John just couldn't stand to sit by and watch somebody headed to judgment. So he had to speak up. We live in a society that really is trying to convince us that the opposite is true, isn't it? If you see somebody doing something you don't approve of, if you see somebody doing something that's unbiblical or whatever that is, just keep your mouth shut. That's love. Love is just tolerance. Love is just let them do it. God comes along and says, that is not love. That is hate. When you watch somebody who's destroying their lives and you know where it's heading and you don't open your mouth, how is that love? That is not love. And so John opens his mouth and says, you know what? I need to point you to, to Jesus because Jesus is judge. Come on, Herod, repent, get your life together. Here's a third reason we point to Jesus, because Jesus is savior. And we talk about this all the time. So I want you to, I want you to picture this for me, if you can. Picture, I showed you some pictures last week. We're at the Jordan River. It's 2000 years ago. John is there. There's a huge crowd of people in the wilderness. He's, he's standing by the river, He's preaching. And then John says, if you want to repent, I'm going to baptize you. John gets down in the river. All the sinners line up. So we know there are crowds. So There's a long line of sinners. Now, imagine that out of the brush comes Jesus, right? Like he didn't announce it. No trumpeters. He kind of sneaks in the line somewhere in the back. Kind of gets in the line. And so here's John. He's down there. Somebody comes down, right? There's a big line. He's like, you're a sinner. Do you repent? Yes. Get wet, right? Sinner, repent. Sinner, repent. Wrong line. All right. So like Jesus comes up. He's like, dude, you're in the wrong line. What are you doing in this line? Why are you, why are you repenting when you've done nothing wrong? So notice what it says here in verse 21. And, and Luke kind of lumps whole, the whole situation, the whole baptism together. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized, and that'll happen in a minute, and he was praying, the heavens were open. So Here's the question you have to ask yourself, the question theologians wrestle with. Why would Jesus get baptized? This is a baptism of repentance and Jesus hasn't sinned. So why would Jesus take part in a baptism of repentance for sins he's never committed? Well, a lot of different uh, theories about this. I have some in your notes. The first is this. Some believe, some scholars say, and uh, by the way, these views, these are, these were you know, thought of by people who are way more intelligent than I am. So, um, you know, I just kind of want you to know what some of these are, though. Some say it was an endorsement of John's ministry. So Jesus come along and Jesus like, you know, I'm going to just in- endorse John's ministry. But I mean, I guess my question would be like, does it seem like John's ministry needs endorsement, right? Like all these people come in big crowds. Does he really need an endorsement at this point? I I don't know. It just doesn't seem right to me. Here's another one. Jesus is identifying with sinners. He's not a sinner, uh, but he's going to just kind of hang, because that's what he did, isn't he? He hangs out with sinners a lot. Eats with them, talks with them, you know. Um, But again, you know, I'd be like, well, if he just wanted to identify with them, he could have stood next to the line and high five people as they came by, like, yes, good job, nice decision, way to go, you know. He could have done that. Uh, Another view is that, Jesus is foreshadowing his new baptism. So Jesus is going to give his disciples a baptism um, to do in the future. And so this is kind of a foreshadowing. Again, I would just say that while it's possible, it seems more confusing than helpful. In fact, in the book of Acts, we'll find out, it was confusing for people to have these different baptisms. But still... Some say that's what was going on. Some will say it was an anointing of Jesus. He's he's about to start his ministry, so he's going to come down, and John's like anointing him. Um, Back in those days when a king was being installed into his office, uh, they would have a public anointing, like, you know, we're installing him in his office now, and some say maybe that's what was going on. I kind of subscribe to this fifth view, though, and that is that uh, what's really happening here is This is part of the righteous life that Jesus is going to live for us. So think about it this way. Jesus not only came to be crucified for us, right, and to rise from the dead for us and to take away our sin, but he also came to live a perfect life for us in our place and then then to give that to us. So we've said this before. When we talk about the righteousness of God, what we mean is this, that God's righteousness does two things for you when you give your life to Christ. It takes something away, and it gives something to you, right? When you get the righteousness of God, it takes away, God takes away your sin, and then he gives you the perfect life of Jesus in that place. So now your sin's gone, and when God sees you, he sees the righteous life of Jesus. Not just the death of Jesus, but the life of Jesus. That's what he sees when he sees you. And, I, and you kind of get this idea in Matthew... Matthew gives us a little different picture of Jesus' baptism. And I think it's a great picture for us in verse 13 of chapter three. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, that was the area John was, to be baptized by John. Now, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So, you know, in other words, when Jesus gets up to the front of the line, John's like, whoa, wait a minute. We switch spots. I'll plug my nose. You put me in, all right? Because that's, you should be baptized me. But Jesus said to him, watch, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all, what? Righteousness. Righteousness. And then he consented. Here, Jesus submits to a baptism of repentance for sins he never committed, and later he will die on a cross for the sins he never committed. Because he didn't just come to die for us. He came to live for us, to live a perfect life so we could receive the righteousness of God. So that Jesus could live a righteous life in our place to be our Savior. And here's the last thing I want to mention, and that is John says, The reason we point to Jesus, point to Jesus, is because Jesus is God. Now, when Jesus shows up in line to be baptized, there is nothing to distinguish him, as far as I can tell, from anyone else in the crowd. Uh, They don't know him, he's not famous yet. He's not walked in any water yet. He's not turned any water into wine. He's not cast out any demons that we're aware of yet. There's no halo over his head, little, you know, sign, Son of God, right? When he's, he just walking through, people like, hey, it's another guy. So, you know, how do we know that Jesus is, is the Son of God? Well, guess who shows up at his baptism? In verse 21. And when Jesus also had been baptized, and when he was praying, the heavens were open. We don't Fully know what that means. It happens a couple times in Scripture. Uh, we think probably with some kind of manifestation that anyone who was there could see. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in, in bodily form, like, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So let's notice this. We have the whole Trinity in one place at one time. We have Jesus who is there, God in the flesh, the God man, Emmanuel. And then we have the Holy Spirit who who appears. It it doesn't say he was a dove. In the Greek, it says he was like a dove. He he looked like a dove. People were like, I don't know, some kind of bird, kind of wing. I'm going to go with a dove. Why a dove? Some people say because the dove represents peace or reconciliation. It's all a possibility. And then while all this is going on, God the Father speaks. Only does it three times in the New Testament. Here at the transfiguration, and as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And what he says is, you are my beloved son. Now, in those days when a king would call someone a son, they would understand back then that what it meant was this son of mine is kind of the same substance as me, has the same attributes and power and honor. And that's the picture that's going on here. When, when the father says, this is my son, what he's saying is Jesus is the same kind of stuff as me, the same, has the same attributes and power and honor. And sometimes you'll read people who will say like, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Okay? Reality is, they killed him because he wouldn't stop saying that he was God. And they just wanted to shut him up. Now, when we talk about Jesus as God, again, you know, we're going to spend two years in Luke. We're going to cover a lot of this stuff. But there's a couple things I want to mention here about the divinity of Christ. There's a lot of confusion about what it means that Jesus is God. What does that mean? How can he be God and man? A lot of debates, a lot of heresy. In your notes, I've mentioned a couple of heresies. There's lots to cover, but we'll just look at two, all right? The first is what we call the heresy of modalism. And um, in in modalism, instead of saying that God is three in one, that's what we believe, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Modalism teaches that God is one who manifests himself in three different ways. Completely different than what we believe. They'll say that God is only the Father. There's just the Father. Sometimes he, he, appear, he, he represents himself as the Father. Sometimes he kind of puts on the mask of the Son. He comes off as the Son. And sometimes he's, he comes out and puts a mask of the Holy Spirit on. Now, of course, the problem is here, you have all three in the same place at the same time. Like, nice going, God. Now, Here's what you need to understand: Modalism is still alive and well, not well today in the world, and you can still find it in churches. In fact, in big churches. If you've heard of a guy, and I, again, you know, I think a lot about this. I've, I've talked with the staff. Should, how specific should we get? But really, our feeling is when there's something that's out there, when there's a heresy, and you're likely to come across it, you need to know what it is. So, there's a pastor. His name is TD Jakes. Probably heard of him. Very well known. He does not believe in the Trinity. He believes in modalism. He doesn't believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He believes that God is just one who manifests himself in three different ways. This is heresy, and it's out there today. Here's another one. It's called the heresy of adoptionism. Again, kind of making a big comeback these days. Adoptionism teaches this. When Jesus was born, he was only a man. No divinity in him at all. So he lived, um, they'll say, uh, he lived, say, 30 years um, up to this point, it, he wasn't eternal. He didn't live before he came to this earth, just a man. But he lived a life that was pleasing to God some forms of adoptionism will say at some point God gave him a little power to see how he'd handle it. And he handled it pretty good. He did good stuff with it. So God was like, I'm pleased with you so I'm going to adopt you as my son. And so there came a point when God adopts him and makes Jesus a son or a God. And he announces it and the spirit enters him at this point. This is called adoptionism. Still very much out there today. Um, This is what they teach at Bethel Church in Reading. A lot of people are you know, familiar with the church? Familiar with Bill Johnson, the pastor, but again, what you need to understand is they teach that Jesus was only a man and not God when he came to this earth. Now, the Bible teaches something different. The Bible says that Jesus is eternal, that he was active at creation, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. So, as a church, we don't believe in modalism or adoptionism. What we believe is something we call the hypostatic union. We brought this up before. The the English word hypostatic comes from the Greek word uh, hypostasis. And that means personal. What What the hypostatic union teaches is this. In the person of Jesus, these two natures, that is he's fully God and fully man, are brought together in this one person. Now, I'm not great with math. But I know that when you have 100% of this and 100% of this, and you try to shove it all into one thing, it gets a little dicey. And such is the mystery, if you will, of of this hypostatic union in Jesus. But this is why we often refer to Jesus as the God-man. Because that's what he is, God and man without sin. As one uh, scholar put it, Jesus was fully divine, and this is where a lot of people wrestle with this. Jesus was fully divine, but when he came to dwell with us, and and when he lived in a body like ours, he voluntarily, and this is important, he voluntarily limited his use of certain attributes at certain times. Now, if that makes sense, this is where a lot of people trip up and, you know, where a lot of debates start. Uh, But we know that Jesus voluntarily um, limited his use of certain attributes. For instance, just take one. The omnipresence of God. The omnipresence of God says that God is everywhere at all times. But when Jesus came to this earth, he, for a while, voluntarily lived in a body. So now Jesus is not everywhere all the time. He is in a body. He voluntarily submitted himself while he was in that body To the Father's will. We'll see that again and again. I came to do the will of my Father. I do nothing other than the will of my Father. And he relies on the power of the Holy Spirit in exercising things like miracles. Now, in no way is his deity limited because he's fully God. Uh, During the course of his ministry, he will forgive sins as God because only God can do that. He will work miracles in the power of God. He will speak as God. He claims equity with the Father. But here's what's really important. It teaches us this, that our salvation is a result of a team effort of the entire unity, right? So, uh, of the Trinity. So here's what, it, here's what didn't happen. It's not like... Jesus and the Father and the Spirit were having breakfast one day, right? They're just having breakfast and like the Spirit is telling Jesus, hey, what are you doing today? You know, like, what's up? You're, you're God eternal. And Jesus is like, you know, I've just been thinking there's those people down there and they're so messed up and, you know, they're struggling and I, 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 I came up with this idea. I'm going to go down. I get this. I'm going to live with them and then I'm going I'm I'm to die for them and rise for them. And the Father's like, whoa, that's, that's what a crazy idea. Like, we should talk about that. Like, we're going to watch that happen. See, what I understand is, this wasn't Jesus' pet project. This was in in the council of the Trinity. The entire Trinity decides to seek us, to work for us, to love us. And this is what we see here already going on. They're all involved. They're all working on our behalf. Not just Jesus, but but the entire Trinity. And Luke is going to talk a lot about this. He's going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. He's gonna talk about what it means to be spirit led. You know, sometimes when when in it some of you come from a background, maybe, maybe when the pastor, like I actually remember in high school going to a church and the pastor said, if you ever go somewhere and the pastor starts preaching about the Holy Spirit, Ugh, that gets weird. People start like screaming and yelling in the church and raising their hands and rolling in the aisles and you're just, you just know, falling down on the stage, you know, get out of that place. And, and then for some of you, maybe that's, you know, your experience. And, but, but here's the thing, Luke's going to explain to us about the spirit. What does it mean to be spirit led? Some people like, that's To be Spirit-led means to be like Jesus. Because as we're going to see, Jesus was led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be Spirit-filled? It means to allow the Spirit to empower you for ministry just as the Spirit empowered Jesus. It means to, to act like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to look like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to be led as Jesus was led. We'll talk a lot about that in this series. But I want to just wrap it up with this big idea. So John is just saying this to us. We need to point people to Jesus. Maybe I should point that way. We need to point people to Jesus, right? And here's where I think it all comes together for us. I would ask you this question. Would you say right now that your life is primarily about you or Jesus? Would you say that your relationships are primarily about you or Jesus? When you're with other people, Is it about like, you know, love me and make me feel good about myself and serve me and do what I want? Or are your relationships about pointing people to the Savior, look to Jesus, follow Jesus, right? Is your marriage, is your marriage pretty much about you, me, 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 me? Or in your marriage, is it about Jesus? Is it about looking for ways to point your mate, your husband, your wife to Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to worship Jesus, to love Jesus? For those of you who are parents, what would you say? Is your relationship with your kids, what's it about? Is it about pointing them to Jesus? What about the people that you work with? What about your friends? What about, what about your grow group, right? When you're with your grow group, what's the point of your grow group? Is it like about eating? Uh, sometimes ours looks like that, but is it about eating? Or is it about hanging out? Or is it about, is it like, no, I want everyone in my group to know Jesus and love Jesus. So I'm going to point him to Jesus. What are your relationships about? I think John would come to us today and say this, point people to Jesus, right? Because we can, we can just get after a while. So to this point, we just, we, we, we forget that. And our relationships start to become about us and what we want and what we need and where we want to go and what we want to watch. And so my question for you today is this. Who are you pointing people to? Is it to you or is it to Jesus? Because what people need is Jesus. I think it's what made John such an amazing man. He was saying, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Let's pray together.